Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. In this podcast, on each episode, we examine specific types of crimes through the lens of special prosecution units here in my office. This particular episode, we will be discussing the types of cases assigned to the Career, Criminal, and Gang Unit. To give you a little bit of background about the current situation in Knoxville, Tennessee, at the time of this podcast, I'll give you some statistics. Currently in Knoxville, we have over 30 identified gangs in Knox County. In those gangs, we have over 1,600 identified known gang members. Every public high school and at least half of our public middle schools currently have an identified gang member who attends those schools. In 2020, there were 474 reports of shots fired in Knoxville city limits. 118 of those reports included an injury. Today with us, we have Assistant District Attorney General Takesha Fitzgerald, lovingly known as TK to those around the office. She began prosecuting cases in Knox County as soon as she graduated from law school in 1998, and most of her career has been focused on prosecuting violent crimes and serious offenders. We also have Assistant District Attorney Ashley McDermott. She became a prosecutor in the Knox County DA's office in 2013 after beginning her legal career as a Sevier County Assistant District Attorney General. Like TK, she has spent the majority of her time as a prosecutor holding serious offenders accountable for the crimes that they have committed. Thank you both for joining us today on Generally Speaking. Thank you for having us. Thanks, General. All right. Let's begin our direct examination. Typically, we start each direct examination or each episode by asking what types of crimes are assigned to your unit. I want to ask you that same question. But first, I'd like to start with just a little bit of background by asking each of you how you came to be a prosecutor in the first place. What motivated you to serve the public in this way? TK, we'll start with you. When I was starting in the DA's office, I started as an intern, and that was in 1996. And what I remember uh, that that had a huge impact in my life was uh, seeing uh, uh, General Bill Crabtree, uh, Willie Harper at the time, Willie Lane now, as well as Arnice Adams. They were working on the uh, case, uh, Brittany Daniels. And Brittany Daniels, she was a five-year-old child who was playing on the sidewalk in Lonsdale, minding her own business just being a kid. And uh, two rival gangs uh, opened up gunfire uh, at each other and, of course, missed each other. And one of the bullets struck her, killed her. And uh, that was just such a sad case. Um, and that case uh, motivated me to have an interest in uh, violent crime cases um, involving gang members. Certainly a sad case, uh, and certainly not the only case that we've seen like that through the years. So definitely a motivator. Thank you, TK. What about you, General McDermott? 
So I, I don't have anything that was like a particular one case that made me want to be a prosecutor. Um, I've known that I wanted to be a prosecutor since I was at least in about fifth grade. I remember um, having like a student, uh, like a day where you, a uh, career day type thing. And I remember the principal coming into my fifth grade class and being like, Ashley, what do you want to be whenever you're older? And I, I, I distinctly remember saying to him, I want to be a prosecutor. Um, I don't have any lawyers or anything like that in my family, so I don't really know what it was that like drove me towards that. But um, I have always wanted to be a prosecutor. All my schooling was directed that way. And that's, like I said, that's what I've wanted to do since I was really little. Thank you guys both for sharing. Uh, like other jobs in public service, most of the time people are here because they really want to serve their community. And I always enjoy hearing our staff's reasons for why they do what they do day in and day out. So let's move on to today's topic. Which types of crimes are assigned to your particular unit, the career criminal and gang unit? So we, uh, we prosecute uh, gang members. And uh, in order uh, for us to get a gang case, uh, the person has to be identified as a gang member uh, to be on a list of uh, gang offenders. Um, additionally, we also prosecute career criminals. And so typically uh, the career criminal we define them, in our unit, we define them as someone having at least four prior felony convictions. Under state law, typically you have to have about six prior felonies in order to be a career criminal in the state law. But for our unit's purposes, we have to have four prior felony convictions. Okay. So people who have devoted their life to crime. Yes. So typically with the, with the gang cases that were assigned, we get cases that involve violence, a lot of cases involving people getting injured, gun cases, robberies drug cases, things like that. In contrast, a lot of our career offenders uh, are people that have had a history of things like aggravated burglaries. Maybe they've broken into uh, six or seven houses in one episode, and then they've committed a crime at some point later in their life. So the type of offenders that we get in those two groups sometimes are different. Um, The career criminals, a lot of times, are property-based crimes, whereas the gang unit, a lot of times, those cases involve um, cases against people, offenses against uh, different members of our communities and things like that. So you guys see a wide range of crimes in your unit. Yes. We get a lot of questions from the community, really, about gang prosecution specifically. Can you define for our listeners what a gang is and what qualifies someone as a gang member? So a, a gang, under the statute, in order to be um Identified as a gang, you have to have three or more people either in an organization um, or associated together where the purpose of, of this organization or association is to commit criminal gang offenses. It's basically at least three people. They're out here committing crimes. The types of crimes that we're talking about is it has to be considered a gang crime. And so those gang crimes typically are violent crimes, um, ag burglaries, drug dealing, uh, weapons possessions of your gang group, you've got to have at least two people that have prior felony convictions for gang offenses. It's pretty defined uh, under state law. Uh, it's not just a group of people that we would consider a gang. You've got to be at least three people and you're out here committing crimes. Again, it's by statute. And so typically you've got to have two uh, criteria uh, under the statute, two of the eight criteria, and that's going to be typically an admission, uh, tattoos, Uh, photographs, uh, documentation of you uh, engaging in criminal gang activity, uh, associating with fellow gang members, 
um, it's, it's pretty defined under the statute. And then on top of that, not only do you have to have all those things, but the particular crime that we're prosecuting also has to be in association with, at the direction of, or for the benefit of the criminal gang. So there's also a requirement that not only are the people part of the gang, but the crime they're committing has to be connected in some way um, to that gang as well. So there has to be some level of organization. Right. Okay. It's not just groups of people. There has to be some defined organization. Can you tell us what gangs actually look like here in Knox County? I would say that uh, the gangs, man, they cover the gambit. All races, um, all economic backgrounds, they're, as you pointed out in the opening, they're all over uh, Knox County. Uh, not one particular area. Um, a, a lot of folks are on, so a lot of gang members are on social media, a whole lot on social media. Um, but they, uh, they come together, uh, they meet uh, either on social media or out in the community, um, different locations, um, public locations, um, and they plan their activities accordingly. Um, they're just all over. We've talked about that you specifically, uh, General Fitzgerald, have been doing this for a long time. Has the makeup or the look of the gangs changed uh, over time since you've been doing these crimes? I would say yes. I would say that the gangs have gotten um, the gangs have gotten younger, and so it seems like when starting out that you probably had a lot of the gang members that at least that we in law enforcement knew about tended to be in the maybe in their twenties and thirties. Uh, it seems like now um, that a lot a lot of those twenties and thirty year olds. I'm not going to say that they've aged out of the gang, but it seems like the cases that we get for those individuals tend to be more dope dealing. Seems seems to us um, that we're getting a whole lot of younger gang members. There's a um, a video that we came across uh, on a cell phone where you've got this probably a younger 20 year old who pulls up to a um, basketball court, and you see probably six or seven, uh, seven or eight year olds Little run kids. up to the car and throwing up gang signs. And this guy that's in the car. He says, yo, you know, these are my east side gangsters. And he gives them like a, a dollar or two. And they're throwing up, basically throwing up gang signs in exchange for a, a dollar or two. Um, and so it seems like that the gang members are getting younger. And with them being younger, from reviewing a number of cell phone exams and social media, you see a lot of these younger kids with uh, these guns. Unfortunately, it's a lot of these younger kids with these guns that are driving the um, violent crime numbers. The, the shoot, they're the ones who are responsible for the shootings. So I would say that's how it's changed. So just younger and younger. The gang members yes. are getting younger and younger. Younger and younger, and they have more accessibility to firearms. What about social media? You know, it's not just like on the street corner, and if you happen to be uh, there on the corner of the street, you see somebody doing something. There's a proliferation of uh, lots of stuff that's available on social media where people do crimes or are hanging out with the other members of their gang and they're posting things on social media and representing their group, talking to each other and just very blatantly and flagrantly posting things on social media about the gang and about, I mean, it's used, I think, as a recruitment tool as well because other people see you know, these these older kids, teenagers, sometimes posting things on social media, and then even the younger kids will see that and think it's cool, and they'll start mimicking that behavior, and you'll start seeing those things posted on so social media as well. 
So it is a lot more prevalent, especially on social media, than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago when, you know, Facebook, Instagram, um, Snapchat, all these different things weren't as available as they are now. Well, your gang member prosecutions are definitely distinct and different from your career criminal prosecutions. And we've talked a little bit about that difference. Uh, Can you talk about how much time you guys spend prosecuting each one of those in your unit? Like, what's the breakdown of those? I would say that probably we have an equal number of career gang cases and career criminal cases that are in front of us if you're looking at just the numbers. But if you're looking at the time that you're spending on each case, because like we said, the gang cases involve victims, they involve guns, they involve um, cell phone uh, reviews and things of that nature, that the time that you spend prosecuting a case or getting ready and prepping for a gang case is a lot more than what you would spend on, say, an aggravated burglary where what your evidence really is, is, you know, what happened there during that specific structured period of time. When you have a gang case, you have victims that you need to talk to. You have um, social media that you need to go through. You have a bunch of different people that you're going to have to interview to, to prove that the person's a member of a gang, to, you know, see how how this particular crime was for the benefit of the gang and and those natures. So your gang cases end up taking up a lot more time just for prep than your other cases um, do. I just wanted to add to that. It's not only with the the, uh, gang cases. It's not only about prepping the case for trial. A lot of these cases, you're going to have witnesses who are reluctant and they are afraid to come forward because the defendant is a gang member. And so, and and I think that's important to to point out that when we're talking about these gang cases, what we're talking about, we're talking about the offender being a gang member. We're not talking about you know the victim being a gang member. So a lot of times, these victims and these witnesses are terrified of the defendant uh, and his gang about you know, and so that's why they are reluctant uh, to come forward. And so a lot of times, we've got to spend hours upon hours meeting with um, these witnesses and victims, not necessarily talking to them about the crime, not prepping for trial, but it's just talking to them about trusting the system and and trusting the process and coming forward um, to be a part of the the prosecution of the case. Um, And so that is why it is so much more time, um, I, I would agree with Ashley, that we spend prepping and preparing gang cases as opposed to the career criminal cases. And part of that, what you're you're touching on, I think, is that prep time and, and dealing with those uh, witnesses who might not want to come forward immediately in the beginning. Um, that kind of leads into how do gang investigations begin and how are they different? That's one way they're different. Um, could you explain a little bit about that? I would say the gang investigation cases typically, a lot of times um, are, are cases they will start with a warrant. And so that's, you know, a crime happens, um, the police are able to do an investigation, get the person identified and arrest them, maybe there at the scene, or it's just no problem, we, we come to court. With gang investigations, it's just been my experience um, that we get a crime identified, and then we start uh, investigating that crime and trying to locate witnesses or any other type of evidence that's going to lead us to the identification of the offender. Those cases tend to be worked up and presented to the grand jury. And those investigations, it's been my experience, tend to take much longer before we can get a uh, an arresting uh, instrument than than like the career um, career criminal cases. Um, just because it's to me, I think it's just so much more involved in convincing these witnesses that it is in the community's best interest to come forward uh, and stand up to these um, gang members and prosecute the case. The other thing I would say that's different too, just kind of going on um, what Takesha said, is that with 
gang cases, a lot of times you'll have more than one defendant. So there'll be, you know, two, three, sometimes four defendants that are charged in um, one crime or in a conspiracy or something like that. And so it's a lot uh, more complicated, more complex of a case than your typical uh, career offender who, for the most part, most of those cases involve one single defendant. And so they're different in that way too, as far as, you know, you have multiple defense attorneys that you're having to interact with and uh, answer motions with and, you know, talk to and discuss the case with as opposed to just one in one of the other cases. So I would say they're a lot more complex because a lot more people are involved sometimes too in your gang cases. What about career criminal cases? Are career criminal cases investigated differently or the same? How do they begin? Going back to Ashley's example about the ag burglaries, and so... Um, Explain to our listeners what an ag burglary is. You guys are using the term <laughs> ag burglary like everybody, like everybody knows. knows. So let's tell them that we're talking about an aggravated burglary and tell our listeners exactly what an aggravated burglary is. So an aggravated burglary means someone has broken into uh, somebody's home uh, with the intent to commit a theft or an assault or a felony, or they've actually broken into somebody's home and actually committed the theft, felony, um, or an assault, as opposed to breaking in a business. And so a business is just considered a, a burglary, but if it's somebody's home, it's an aggravated burglary. And so I, I say an aggravated burglary as an example because uh, maybe that's a, a crime that a number of people have been a victim of, but typically with an aggravated burglary, you know, somebody breaks into your house, uh, nine times out of 10, there's not gonna be any witnesses there. That person's gonna break into your house when you know, you're at work, uh, all your neighbors are at work, and so there's not anybody that's gonna um, see you breaking into the house see that person breaking into the house, and it's been our experience. I mean, you know, burglars, they no, they no longer leave fingerprints. You know, back in the day, maybe a burglar was saw because somebody left a fingerprint, but, but that's just not how it happens. Typically, I would say um, a person probably gets caught because uh, they have done it so many times and they just get sloppy. And maybe they pawn uh, a stolen item at a pawn shop and we're able to trace it back to that person and the officer brings the person in for an interview. I say all that to say that once that happens, then we can probably take out a warrant for that person. Um, it, to me, it seems like with their career criminals, they are more likely to, the prosecutors are more likely to start with a warrant as opposed to grand jury presentment um, in a gang, like in a gang case. For the listeners that have been with us through the entire podcast, um, they probably remember that uh, warrants are a different level of prosecution, that warrants are charges that we take out and they come in through the Sessions level. And we go through Sessions Court and have a hearing at the Sessions Court level to get up to that grand jury. So when you guys start talking about we take our career gang cases to the grand jury, you're basically saying we skip the Sessions level uh, with a lot of our gang prosecutions. And we begin a lot of our career prosecutions down at the Sessions level. Yes, and that's another reason, again, I, I keep going back to the gang cases, but it's just that these these witnesses are terrified, and and so we want to be able to uh, put them in a situation where they have to testify the least number of times as possible. And typically, we can uh, get that done by presenting the case to the grand jury instead of taking out a warrant. Why do you two think it's important for us to set aside a particular unit to prosecute these career criminals and these gang cases? Why don't we just assign these cases to everybody? Why is an aggravated burglary committed by a career offender different than an aggravated burglary committed by a first-time offender? And why is a gang case different? Why is it important for your unit to exist? 
like I can tell you from my experience in this office, I wasn't always in the the career gang unit. So I was um, in the child abuse unit for a while, and then I was in a general assignment unit for a while. And I could tell you, had I been given a career gang case, specifically, like if I had been given a gang case at that time, I would have been like, I don't know very much about gangs, how they work, who the players are. Uh, what the languages they're using and what the different terms and hand signs and colors and all of those things that you learn when you're in the gang unit um, about um, the gang world. So I would say the reason that it's important to have a gang unit is because there is a, a high level of specialized knowledge that you don't have unless you're in that unit or unless you've learned that. And there's um, to get everybody in our office familiar with all that stuff is almost impossible to do. And then as far as the career offenders, um, I think that since they're career offenders, they are probably facing uh, more jail time than somebody who is a first-time offender. They're probably um, more familiar with the system than somebody that's a first-time offender. And they're much more likely to want to go to trial and just um, say, well, I'm probably going to get a lot of time, so I might as well just go ahead and have a trial in this case. So I think that the four attorneys in our unit are attorneys that go to trial often, kind of specialize in in going to trial. And so I think that that's one of the reasons also why it's important to have a unit that focuses on career offenders. And I just want to piggyback off of that. Again, it again it goes back to the uh, to the witnesses. I mean, we have an exorbitant amount of cases in our office. I think that with the career gang unit, uh, you're specializing, you're identifying certain cases that we need to devote a considerable amount of time um, with the witnesses and prepping the cases for trial. And, and with the career with the the gang cases, again, it goes back to that time. I think that we've got to be willing to set aside and devote to these witnesses and victims to just get them to trust the system, uh, to believe in the system. That's just a whole bunch of time uh, that maybe other units wouldn't have to spend with those witnesses uh, because of all the other cases they have. It is a situation where with gang cases, you know, if you just subpoena somebody to court and they don't come to court, I mean, that case very easily could just get dismissed for you to prosecute. And I think with the, the gang cases, I think all of us understand, all of us in the office understand uh, that you've got to be willing to devote, um, I think, extra time in those cases just because witnesses don't want to come to court and don't want to prosecute. That, that's not a reason for the case to get dismissed. One of the things you said, Ashley, in your answer was that the career criminals in your unit would get more time on some of these cases. So let's talk about that for just a second because the community often asks us things like, why somebody with so many convictions not already in jail or in prison? Why are they still out committing crimes? Can you discuss the different scenarios or maybe some cases to illustrate how it happens that people with these lengthy records are still out in the community committing crimes? So first, it may be that the person has already been, you know, tried, convicted, and punished for the crime. So they may have served uh, an eight-year sentence and then been paroled after they uh, did 30% of their sentence when they became eligible to be paroled. So they may have already um, been prosecuted for that case, been convicted of that case, and served their time, and they're out, and now we're back again doing the same thing. So we get people like that. Um, a lot of times. It may also be that um, for whatever crime uh, that they did initially, they were placed on some form of um, probation. And so now here you have them again, and this time you're asking, uh, can that first case 
we're going to ask to revoke their probation on that first case and have them serve that sentence. And then in addition to that, have this new sentence run consecutive to the first sentence that they were already serving. So that happens pretty frequently. Um, but I would say uh, there's a lot of cases sometimes, especially with uh, aggravated burglaries and stuff like that, or burglaries, that the person may be committed five or six at the same time. So they've gone into a neighborhood and broken into a, a couple different people's houses, or they've gone down and they've committed burglaries at a couple di different businesses all in the same day, or they've committed uh, like a, a car burglary where they just have walked down the street and tried to open every single car door on a big long line of streets, and maybe they have eight car burglary convictions for that um, particular offense. So... Um, I would say that it's sometimes they've served their time, sometimes they're on probation, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just that we didn't get them the first time, that that maybe we made an offer for the person to apply for probation thinking that, well, certainly the court is going to, you know, make them serve the sentence, and then the court gives them an opportunity to be on probation, and then they mess that up. So that certainly happens sometimes, too. I agree. It's, it's not like it's a situation where you know, someone's got 30 prior felony convictions and, you know, it's not like it's a situation where they have committed a burglary, gotten probation, got out and committed, you know, another burglary, gotten probation. It's not like it's happened 30 different times. I mean, I, I think that typically we have a situation where you have a serial burglar who has just, um, as Ashley has said, has broken into probably 30 homes. And what has happened is that they have um, pawned something, uh, they've gotten identified or they got caught in the act. They brought, um, they they were caught in the act and they were brought down uh, to be interviewed by the detectives. And after being caught red-handed, uh, at that point in time, they confessed to committing those 30 burglaries and were able to corroborate that confession. And then they end up pleading to those 30 burglaries. I had a case one time where, uh, this group of individuals would break into houses and they would steal the people's pillowcase and then fill the pillowcase with everything that they wanted to take from the house. And they had been doing that for a, couple, a number of months, never caught them. Then one day the police, you know, pull them over in a traffic stop. They've got like 10 pillowcases full of stuff in the back of the car and the police were like, that's pretty weird. And so through the course of their investigation, they're able to tie those particular burglaries back to 10 separate houses and then let the community know that, you know, if you were a victim of a case involving your pillowcase being stolen, then you need to call the police department and, you know, then we can tie it back to the, these particular offenders. So things like that sometimes happen too. These career offenders are sometimes signature criminals uh, in that particular instance. Sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes get away with quite a few crimes before being caught, which happens often. Mm -hmm. Takesha, you've talked a lot about witnesses coming forward. So let's drill down on that for just a second. Lots of times law enforcement officers and, and we as prosecutors are telling the community, please come forward as a witness. Uh, we need witnesses to come forward to help us solve these crimes. Sometimes they're reluctant to do that. Recently, we've heard some pushback from the community saying, we don't want to come forward. You and law enforcement, if you would just do your job, we wouldn't need to come forward. When they say, just do your job without witnesses, is that realistic or is that reasonable? From a law enforcement perspective, can you explain why it is we need witnesses to come forward and we can't do our job without those witnesses? 
first of all, this is our community, all of us. So it's not you know, law enforcement. No, it's just us. It's us prosecutors. We live in the community. We, you know, whatever part of Knoxville you live in or Knox County, live, it's all the same community. Our job, we believe, is com- keeping our community safe. That's all of Knox County. Um, so let, let's use for an example, um, KPD, they send us weekly shots fired calls uh, and emails. And uh, this past week, we have an email that showed that we had 178 shots fired calls for the year so far. A lot of those calls are like drive-by shootings that occur like at midnight. Let's say that, you know, into a house. Well, the people in the house, they are asleep. And so all they know is they wake up to gunfire. They didn't see who did the shooting. They can't identify anybody, the people in the house that are asleep. Um, But in order to get that case solved, we need witnesses who may have seen a car drive by. Uh, We need a witness who may have seen some individuals posting stuff on social media. It is unfair for that homeowner uh, to have went through that crime and that crime not be solved because People are saying the community shouldn't come forward. There's no way in the world law enforcement could ever, ever solve that case unless a witness comes forward and tells us what they saw. Now, I'm not saying that that this witness is going to be able to say, hey, I saw little Joey do the drive-by, but, the, but each witness may have a little bit of information that's going to help us in solving the case. Um, but it is impossible, absolutely impossible, for law enforcement to get violent offenders off the street to identify violent offenders unless we have uh, help from our neighbors. And our neighbors are the, are the community members. It's not an us versus them. It's all of us are in this together. Talking about that, uh, that you might not be able to say it was definitely little Joey that drove by. But as a witness, you may have some piece of information that would help us Can you talk about uh, maybe a particular time that a witness did come forward with some information that was helpful to the case, but it didn't involve that witness having to come to court and testify. It just helped to solve the case without testimony. Do either of you have any examples of those types of things? I'll go back to Xavion Dobson's case. Xavion Dobson is a completely innocent high schooler who was hanging out with his buddies on uh, on the back porch of one of his friends. Uh, him him and his buddies, they were just completely innocent. They were just being high schoolers, hanging out in December 2015. What he didn't know um, was that there was uh, some gang shooting um, at East Knoxville. And in retaliation, uh, this person wanted to get revenge, not necessarily on Xavion. This person didn't even knows Xavion, but he just wanted to get revenge by shooting up a West Knox, uh, West Knoxville house. So he goes to Lonsdale, him and his buddies, and they uh, end up shooting up the porch uh, that Xavion was standing on, and Xavion gets struck by a bullet and, and dies. Well, none of the kids could identify anybody because it was at dark, it was at night, and uh, they're not expecting to be shot at. So the kids, they couldn't identify anybody. Uh, we bring the defendants, uh, we're, we're able to get some leads, we're able to get uh, the defendants identified, uh, one of the defendants gave a a full confession, a full statement, and identified other people that were there. We can't use that statement against the co-defendants unless we cut him a, a deal, and we're not going to do that. One of the witnesses um, had identified an outfit that 
one of these uh, defendants was wearing, a, a person that we knew was a defendant, but we didn't have enough ev- evidence in order to charge him. Uh, but just happened to be talking with this lady in passing, and she didn't think she she had any information. She wasn't a witness. You know, she wasn't a witness to the shooting. But the more we talked to her, she said, oh, well, yes, you know, I know what such and such was wearing on the night of the shooting. You know, oh, by the way, I've got a video of him dancing, and it shows his outfit. And uh, she provided us with that video, and it corroborated everything that this witness said. And because of that video, uh, we were able to charge this individual uh, with with the homicide of Xavion. Um, and as Ashley pointed out, you know, in these kinds of gang cases, we tend to have multiple defendants. Uh, and so we were able to charge three people with uh, Mr. Dobson's killing, all because this one witness who, although she wasn't out on the porch, she didn't see the shooting, but she had information that was uh, very, um, very helpful to law enforcement in getting these individuals held accountable for that killing. What goes unreported that you as a career criminal and gang prosecutor uh, need to be reported to help solve crimes and help maintain that public safety that we're talking about? How do people report these crimes or submit this information, the, the folks that you want to come forward? What is it you need from them and what is it you want to encourage people to report? So I would go back to something um, Takesha said earlier about the shots fired. There have been 178 shots fired as of this this week, this year, and 38 of those involved injuries to people. Um, and I would say that there are probably more unreported shots fired than the ones, obviously, that we know about from that statistic. So when those type things ha- type of things happen where there's shots fired, I think sometimes people just assume, okay, that was really loud. I live in a small neighborhood. I'm sure somebody's reported this. And, and, and maybe nobody calls because everybody thinks everybody else called. Or maybe you're in a rural area and there's, a, there's you know, shots fired and it's something out of the ordinary and then it just doesn't get reported. I would think that that's something that would be important um, t- to get reported. And the way you do that is obviously, you know, if, if it's shots fired and you see somebody injured, you call 911. But if it's, if it's something uh, where you just happen to hear shots fired and you don't want to call 911, then you can call a non-emergency number. If you're in the county, you can call the Knox County Sheriff's Office, and if you're in this city, you can call the non-emergency uh, KPD number. I would um, also like to say, like, if you see a juvenile uh, with a flash and a handgun on social media throwing up hand signs, calling out opposite gang, please call and report that to the KPD non-emergency number or the Sheriff's Office non-emergency number. Uh, that is something I think that, uh, that that goes unreported. I think that a lot of times people see this stuff on social media and they're thinking, well, it's no big deal or it doesn't involve me, so it's not not a big deal. Um, but that that is something that is super, super important to law enforcement. Sharma, if I could, can I, if I can go back to that previous question you asked about telling people not to, to get involved in law enforcement, you do your job. Back in 2010, there was a, uh, a killing at the Unitarian Church. That killing happened inside the church. While all of the witnesses to that killing would be church members, people in the church. If you were to expand that, let's say we have a shooting that takes place after school when kids are being let out of school. If that shooting takes place around all of those kids, all of the witnesses are going to be kids. I mean, so we're going to rely upon, we're going to depend upon those kids to come forward and tell us what they saw. I mean, it just is. There's no way in the world that we would ever be able to solve some type of case uh, like that unless we have whoever 
uh, saw whatever to come forward and tell us. Uh, but again, we are. it is so important for everyone to understand that we are all in this together. Anything that either of you can think of that we haven't covered that our listeners would uh, need to know about career criminal prosecution or gang prosecution? I, I do want to give one more example. Just in case somebody says, <laughs> hey, well, it's not a big deal, you know, just because some kid is uh, on social media on TikTok with a uh, handgun, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. Maybe he's just pretending, maybe he's not a real gang member. He's just got that gun for protection. And so I do, do want to give one more example that we had a, uh, um, a young man, uh, Mr. Taylor, who was killed in January uh, this year here in Knox County. He was in the car with his uh, buddies. And based on what the witnesses tell us, um, this defendant had just, juvenile, had just bought this gun uh, and uh, he had taken the clip out of this gun and he was showing the gun around and he pulled the trigger, not realizing that uh, there was still a bullet left in the gun and Mr. Taylor was killed. And uh, again, if, you know, that that is just information that, you know, had law enforcement uh, been made aware of, of uh, you know, this young man with a gun, maybe that is something that we could have done to prevent Mr. Taylor from uh, being killed. Um, I, I, I just think it's just important for, for anyone who sees a kid with a handgun to please let us know. So I had a case recently where there were people that were posting on social media. It was a bunch of juveniles and adults, young adults, that were showing weapons and, and in a hotel room here in Knox County. And clearly, based on what they were posting on social media, they were, they were up here with the purpose of committing a crime. And so had somebody seen that and reported that at that time, um, then what happened next could have been prevented, which was that these particular individuals went to um, an ATM where there was an elderly man that was withdrawing some money from an ATM. And they knocked him down, took his vehicle, injured him pretty severely, and then basically went on a crime spree from there. They went from here in Knox County with that vehicle. And then as they're doing that, they're also posting them inside the victim's vehicle with guns and alcohol and drugs that they're putting on social media as they're driving up to Nashville where they committed a second carjacking with a second with a second victim of crime um, in Nashville. And so had somebody said anything to law enforcement earlier, maybe we could have prevented some crime as well. And that's something that always we're looking towards doing in this unit too. That has been a consistent theme throughout our entire podcast. No matter what the crime is, it sort of boils down to if you see something, say something. No matter what the crime is, if you see something that could potentially uh, be just not right, say something, whether it's involving a gang member or a career criminal or a child abuse case. Just uh, always be mindful that uh, law enforcement relies on the community to help protect itself. So thank you both so much for being with us today. Uh, I appreciate all of your insight and uh, all of your conversation today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. from our prosecutors, let's consider how we as a community can prevent and respond to this type of crime. It's time for our closing statements. Career criminal and gang prosecutors are examples of my office's effort to be tough on crime. However, we also strive to be smart on prevention. For instance, 
we encourage school attendance through a bike incentive program, which also raises awareness about the importance of attending school and results in dramatic improvements in test scores and school culture. We also are actively involved in community organizations that provide early intervention and prevention programming. As a community, we should invest in early intervention and prevention efforts no matter where we live. We know what works, but we as a community must be all in and we must be in together. If you want to help reduce violent crime in your community, become a mentor, support after-school programs, and programs that help parents in need. There are many ways that we can impact the next generation. Another way to help build a safe community is to report criminal activity. Hopefully, we were able to successfully explain why we need the community's assistance in preventing and stopping violence and why we simply cannot do this alone. Please visit our website, knoxcounty.org DAG to learn how you can prevent and report crime in your community. Thank you for listening to Generally Speaking, a podcast presented by the Knox County District Attorney's Office. You can find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website, knoxcounty.org DAG. Join us next time for a different type of conversation as we sit down with one of our assistant district attorneys assigned to juvenile court, General Dale Holly. If you want to learn more, we've included links to sidebar conversations in the show notes. Don't miss out on more behind-the-scenes content.